0: Just about 30 years ago now, the community theater up in Charlotte, North Carolina, decided to put on a production of the musical Annie. And for its time and its place, it was a big deal. It was the big show that was going to kick off their entire season, the one responsible for generating good press, advertiser interest, season ticket orders, excitement, momentum, all of the things that a community theater needs to survive. And on the day of its opening night, brothers and sisters, Annie looked like it was going to be a hot mess. Everything that could go wrong, it seemed, was. By and large, the middle school girls who were playing Mrs. Hannigan's Orphans had been fine, but their mamas. The stage moms had shown up in full force. The dog who was cast to play Sandy was an artiste and fragile, apparently. So its trainer demanded not only that it be allowed to bring along an understudy, but also that each one of the pooches get their own separate, private dressing rooms as sanctuaries away from the commotion of the rest of the cast. The set pieces were well enough built, even if the paint wasn't quite dry. But the wardrobes were a threatening disaster. As talented as she was, the seamstress who was supposed to be preparing them had just broken up with her boyfriend, and she was so shaken up that she had not been able to sew straight for weeks. Well, at 6 p.m. that night, two hours before the show was supposed to go on at 8, and just 30 minutes before cast and crew were supposed to arrive and prepare themselves. The director was told that all of the costumes for Act 1 were completed. But Act 2 and Act 3, well, the seamstress assured her that they would be ready in time, but she needed a workplace close enough to the stage to be able to hand them off at the last minute. And then, having an epiphany in the moment, the seamstress hurried into the director's own office, which was right there in the wings. And she swept everything off of the director's desk and pronounced that this was the perfect spot for her to work. Let's just say that for the director, a woman by the name of Sally Bates, opening night was beginning to feel like a hard knock life. 7.15 rolled around. And the caterers arrived to set up food in the lobby, and they were given one simple directive. Do not plug anything into this electrical outlet right here. Because if you do, you will trip a breaker and everything will go dark. 7.30 and the cast was dressed in their Act One costumes, 8 o'clock arrived and everything was actually in place for the curtain to go up and it was all running smoothly until 8.15 when a caterer plugged a coffee pot into the forbidden outlet thrusting the entire house into darkness. The tech crew made their way to the basement to restore power. The director made her way through the darkened, grumbling audience into the lobby where she could be heard scolding the catering crew. The cast was told to reset everything, take it all from the top. And then it was a success. The cast and the crew held it all together amidst the chaos. The costumes kept appearing from the director's catastrophe an office, miraculously on time and perfectly sized. Even the dogs who were playing Sandy kept their composure and made their marks. Afterwards, the audience raved. The reviews in the Charlotte Observer were stellar. The after party was euphoric, and everyone was coming up to Sally, the director, slapping her on the back, telling her that she had done it. She had pulled off a miracle. And, she thought to herself, she had... Four years of a bachelor's program in dramatic arts. Two more spent in Chapel Hill for a master's degree. The years spent as an apprentice, as an assistant. Sally had successfully brought all of it to bear that night and done the thing that she had wanted to do all of her life in the face of more adversity than she could have ever imagined. And yet, leaving the party that night, well after midnight, delirious from all the adrenaline, a little tipsy perhaps from some celebratory champagne, as she was crossing the empty parking lot to her car, she looked up and saw the biggest, brightest moon that she says she'd ever seen in her life. And as she stood there in its light, she had an epiphany. If I am ever again going to work as hard as I have tonight... She said to the night sky, it will be in service of something more important than Annie. It will be, she said, for you. Sally finished out that season and hung around Charlotte for one more before resigning her position as executive director of the community theater and enrolling at Duke Divinity School, which is where she was serving as chaplain when Rebecca and I got there about a decade later. By her own admission back in Charlotte, she had everything that she had ever wanted. I mean, she was rocking and rolling, working in the field that she loved, a great job in a great city, even had a cool historic house in a hip downtown neighborhood. And yet... She still asked herself, to what end? The Matthew text that Lugina read for us a moment ago, Jesus' parable of the talents, is both one of the better known parables of Jesus and also one that suffers from a core misunderstanding. That's because at some point in the Middle Ages, the talents at the center of the story started to be understood as personal attributes, abilities that we each have and that we can bring to bear on the world around us. You know, talents. But in the original story, and in the ancient Greek world, a talent was an amount of money, a large amount of money. A talent as such was actually a measure of weight equivalent to about a hundred pounds these days. And when used to count money, what would have been weighed would have been either silver or gold. Either way, we are talking about serious cash here. An entire lifetime's worth of savings. And this is the point. This is the point of the sermon after redirecting the congregation's attention away from talents as we commonly understand them to the word's original financial meaning, this is the point of the sermon that a lot of preachers use the parable of the talents as a text about financial stewardship. The story always appears in late November, after all. And this is the time of year that most churches are in a stewardship campaign, if not in an out-and-out financial crunch. And so this parable becomes an opportunity for a preacher to preach a sermon that is some version of what are you going to do with your money? And yet, that's not quite what's going on in the text. I mean, if you want to give your money to the church, please do. If you are already giving money to the church, then thank you from the depths of my heart for your generosity. If you are here, or even if you're online and you're curious what an appropriate amount of money for you and your family to give to support the missions and ministries of the church, and you'd like to have a conversation about that in the strictest of competences, then I or another one of our leaders would be happy to sit down. But that is not what we are talking about this morning. Because this morning we are talking about something that is quite frankly bigger. And that's because the amounts of money that are being thrown around in this story are absurd. I mean, forget wealth, we're talking about generational wealth, big money lottery type money failed Texas A&M football coach type money so the parable isn't exactly about dollars and cents It is actually about a master being extraordinarily generous and giving his servants an opportunity that look to be well beyond the abilities that they could have ever dreamed of for themselves. I mean, who here would know what to do with that kind of money? If you work in finance, you're not allowed to answer that question. So stick with me. Who would know how to handle that much silver, that much gold? It's almost enough to make you sympathetic towards the third servant who buries it. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. And yet when the master returns, he scolds that third servant for being so conservative for squandering the opportunity that he had been given to grow his master's kingdom. My friends, it is approaching noon, and I am in the precarious position of standing between a room full of Baptists and a congregational meal, so I will be brief. Each and every one of us here has been given the opportunity of a lifetime by an overly generous master. It doesn't matter who you are. Like the servant in the story, we have been given more than we could ever hope for or imagine. Talents, yes, abilities, passions, proficiencies. And alongside those, talents in the classical sense as well. Resources, money, power. Social and professional connections influence everything. And again, it doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're young or whether you're old whether you know yourself to be wealthy or fear that you are not. It's true for all of us. We have been given entire lives filled with gifts, and what's more than that, we have been invited to use those gifts to further our Master's kingdom, to enrich it, to expand it, But to do that, to enrich the master's kingdom, to, to expand it here on earth, it's risky to advocate for the poor and the downtrodden before the powerful, to serve the mission of the church, to give generously. Better, perhaps, to be conservative, play it safe, err on the side of Of caution. Be like the third servant in the parable and not risk the chance. After all, you might find yourself at a loss. A lower rung on the corporate ladder than you had wanted, a smaller investment portfolio than you had dreamt of, a lesser status in the eyes of your peers as they sprint. Cast you in our societal rat race. A cost, a cost may well be counted. My friends, we only get to go through this life once. And life is an extraordinary gift. Time, talents, connections, resources, and your life is worth more than you can possibly know. So how will you spend your life? How will you spend your time, your days? Because when you're young, they don't tell you this. But it turns out that how you spend your days is actually how you spend your life. So where will you invest? What will you invest it in? And to what end? Because just like the servants in today's parable, you have been invited to use your talents in both meanings of the word to grow the kingdom of your Lord right here expand it and enrich it and nurture it, to serve it and shape it to the best of your ability with all of the great gifts that you have been given. You have been invited to change people's lives and perhaps even to have yours changed in the process. And a cost may well be counted. And yet, alongside what may be lost, consider for one moment what might be gained. Because you see, you and I, you and I have been invited to take part in nothing less than the salvation of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.